But this morning, take your Bibles and open to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This was a, a free week. We finished Romans 11 last week, and I had kind of a gap week before I leave uh, for my trip in uh, the month of July. So I, uh, I just said, what do I want to preach on? I don't get to do that very often. Um, it's what is most on my heart. This is something I want to confess to you. It's probably a bit of a sermon and a bit of a rant. And the rant is mostly directed at my own heart. This is something that I've seen over and over in my own life, over and over in my three sons, over and over with my friends, over and over with our staff and elders, over and over in our church, over and over in society. And it just needs to be addressed And Paul addresses it head on in Philippians chapter 2. What it is, is the maturing value of awareness. Said another way, it's solving the issue of being clueless. Clueless spiritually, clueless socially, clueless financially, clueless in every way. Philippians chapter 2, you know very well, but I want to put it in a little context for us. Most people think that the book of Philippians is about joy. And there's a lot about joy in this, in this book. Don't make any mistake. And I certainly think it's a predominant theme. But I think the, the predominant theme is the, the main theme that extends from chapter 1 to the end of the book of Philippians is not just joy, but it's unity. And unity doesn't just mean believers who believe the same things. It means something far more than that. And I think you'll get a sense of that in these first two verses in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, therefore, if, and when when it's if, it's, it's like perchance, if there might be. If there's any encouragement in Christ. If there's any consolation of love. If if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Based on that, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than you are, than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also look out for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know what it's like to be around someone who's clueless? Now, be careful, because some of them might be thinking about you. Just happened to me uh, yesterday. I was, I was waiting to turn at a light. This person, two people crossing the street, um, uh, they had the light, but... It was almost when they saw that I needed to turn and they were walking in front of me, they slowed down. And I, just, I, I think when I try to cross the street in front of someone, I try to be at least in a little bit of a hurry because I know they're trying to turn. And I just, I just found myself saying, you are so clueless. Somebody who steps in front of you in a line, does that just happen to me? 
I was with my, whole fam- with my whole family at an airport one time, and we were in the TSA security line, and there were five of us, and little kids, and it's luggage, and it's a disaster. And this family just comes, there's a whole lot behind us, and just gets right in front of us. And I just said, excuse me. And my wife says, you're a pastor. So, <laughs> clueless. Saw the guy who sneezed on the salad bar, and I was very thankful for those plates of glass, which wasn't at this salad bar, by the way. Clueless. Or the person, and, and God love you if this is you, who loves a good Italian dish laden with garlic and then wants to converse with someone a few hours later this close. It's like, you're clueless. Do you not know that garlic is socially awkward? <laughs> How about the person who you go out with who doesn't, you know, they throw some money when you're sharing a meal and they don't think about tax or tip. They just... How about public displays of affection? Clueless. You know, you, you, you see people doing this and you think, that's not supposed to be done in public. Or how about this? Happened to me just recently sitting on an airplane, and most of these faux pas, I think, happen on airplanes. Uh, we were about to take off, and it was pretty quiet in there because not a lot of people know each other, and there was a guy on a cell phone cutting some business deal, and everyone on the whole plane knew what was going on because he, he was just yelling into this phone. I'm like, sometimes there's a, word, there's a place for this word. Dude, we hear you. Stop it. And then my worst, this, this happens to me. I, I must be a magnet for these people. If you fly, then you understand this. And if you don't, just humor me. Armrests. <laughs> Anyone identify with that with just a simple, you know, armrests are about two millimeters wide between airplane seats. And so, you know, you're trying to eat with, it's just, it doesn't work, and you're trying to be. Well, there's that guy who just kind of sits in, especially if he's in the middle seat. He thinks, you know, I'm sentenced to this middle seat, so I am owed the armrest. And so he just does this, and you're leaning out in the aisle. Worse than even that, I was on an international trip with a guy from Eastern Europe who had had a little bit too much to make him sleepy, and uh, was, um, he, he kind of passed out on my shoulder. And I just, I talk about, you close, are you not aware that I'm here? I think he was very aware that I was here, actually. Cause, and so I, I kind of moved, and his head was on my chest. <laughs> and then I moved a lot, and he laid on my lap. <laughs> Clueless. It's kind of fun to laugh at those things, isn't it? Are you aware of how many times people have thought of you as clueless? insensitive, unaware. Unawareness is the condition of being (laughs) uninformed or unaware. And the passage before us, I think, is Paul's anthem against the sin of being unaware and the virtue of becoming aware. Said another way, the sin of being clueless and the virtue of being clued in to the people around us. Now, there's, we have to have an on-ramp for the passage that we're going to look at in verses 3 and following, but let's look at verses 1 and 2 just as a head start. 
Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and Paul uses these, these, these ifs. There are four ifs there. And if is like, well, if, if this is true in your, in your life, if this is true in your church, if this is true in your heart, then there ought to be consequent consequences. Therefore, should there be, maybe, if there perchance is, any encouragement in Christ, meaning the centrality and foundation of our faith is the person of the Lord Jesus. If there's any encouragement, if you are happy that you're saved and not going to hell, if there's any encouragement by being in Christ, if... There is any consolation of love. Literally, any, any love that you have toward other people. You, you, you like somebody. You're inclined to give them attention. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if we are the blood-bought body of Jesus Christ and we're to have relationships with one another based on that in the Spirit of God, if there's any affection and compassion this uh, uh, affection is, uh, is an interesting word. It means if there's any feelings in your stomach, any feelings in your bowels, literally, if you have any emotion, is the word, any emotional attachment to anyone in this context, in the body of Christ, love for those outside the church is, is in the Bible, but that's another passage. This is love for the body. If you have any of that, then make your pastor happy. This is not Rick. This is Paul. Make my joy complete. Now, most pastors, I think, if, they're, if, if you were to say, how could you be most happy with your church? How could you be most joyful with your church? We could have a whole list of things. I wish people would, more people would come and people would come more. I wish the attendance was better. I wish the giving was better. I wish we had better property. I wish the pews were more, more comfortable. I wish the chairs were tighter. I wish the, and we could go on and on and on and on and on about what would make us more happy. What would make Paul happy? He says, make my joy complete. As a spiritual leader, a pastor, an elder, a leader, make my joy complete. How, Paul? Look at the next passage. By being of the same mind. Being of the same mind means there's not just an absence of conflict. It means more than a unity of purpose, as he's about to tell us. You're maintaining the same love. You love each other the same way, at the same level. United in spirit. I don't think that word there, spirit, is capitalized, the Holy Spirit. United in spirit means we're all passionate about doing the same thing, that our mission statement is actually a part of our life's statement. And then he says, intent on how many purposes? One purpose. That we understand what we're all clearly about. All of this amounts to having the same outlook. Maintaining the same outlook. Caring about the same outlook. Not thinking that the vision and purpose for the church is for somebody else or even for the leaders. It means we understand that we are a part of the organic, living, abiding body of Christ and we have relational responsibilities and obligations one to the other. All of this then points to that central imperative in verse 3. Do. Do. Nothing from selfishness, which we're going to find out in a minute, is not even a verb. We're going to break this passage down by looking simply at this. Three goals of godly <laughs> maturity. Three goals for Godly maturity. 
I think this passage uniquely, especially in the context of Philippians, remember he's going to tell Yodia and Syntyche in a couple chapters, you got to get along. There are problems at the church in Philippi. And let me also say this. I, I am fully convinced that the more healthy a church becomes, let's personalize it, the more healthy that Mission Road Bible Church becomes, the more problems we're going to see, identify, and have to deal with. It's not that the problems happen. They're already there. We just begin to have the spiritual sensibilities to deal with each other because we are all problematic, are we not? If you're not, please talk to me afterwards. I would love to be discipled by you. We can have a great relationship. Three goals of godly maturity. All of them have to do with being aware. Number one, awareness of the problem of selfishness. We've got to figure out what the problem is. Awareness of the problem of selfishness. This shows up from the very first time a child knows how to talk because one of the first things they ever learn is what? Mine. Mine. Paul says, do nothing, verse 3, from selfishness, nothing from empty conceit. Now, this may seem strange, but there's no verb in that sentence in the Greek. And the lack of a verb actually makes it stronger. It implies an imperative. It implies a command. Literally, it reads, uh, because there's, there's the, the, these, uh, these ifs that he's just laid out, and we're making his, Paul's joy complete. We're intent on one, one purpose. Then nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. You don't even need a verb. Adding the do nothing is a great way to understand this. Nothing should be from these two roots of selfishness and or vain or empty conceit. Now remember the context here. We're being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on more purpose. These are all functions, listen, of the mind, of how we think. Christianity is fundamentally a rational religion. It's a thinking religion. Sure, emotions come to play. Sure, emotions are, are, are part of it. But emotions are all based on what we believe. Remember, the, when we come into a problem, the three ways to counsel yourself, to ask, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I know? It's about the mind. Paul says, being of the same mind, thinking, maintaining the same love, that's an action based on how you think, united in spirit, we're thinking consistently with each other and intent on one purpose. We know what our goals are and what we're after. A goal is one purpose, and that's being gospel men and women. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Two interesting words, selfishness. It means looking out for yourself alone. Being selfish. Can, can we have an honest moment with each other? Isn't it super easy to identify selfishness in someone else? Is that not so easy to identify? Just babysit with two or more kids, and you'll find selfishness very fast, very, very quickly. We are so quick to identify selfishness in others and so reticent and hesitant and unwilling to identify selfishness in us. 
Paul says you got to start here by, by recognizing how selfish we all are. We are the center of our universe. We're typically the sun in our own solar system. Everything revolves around us. When our parents used to tell you, say, do you think the world revolves, the, the universe or everything revolves around you? The answer to that is actually, yeah, I do. I may not want to admit it, but yeah, yes, I do. Looking out for yourself over anyone else. Now, you, you can't go to extreme um, you can't just say, well, I'm going to go to the mall and shop. So in order to do that, I'm going to make sure that I pick the parking spot farthest away because it would be selfish to do anything closer. That, that's not what's talking about here. Get the earlier, the, the, the closer parking spot if you can. Just don't be mad when someone beats you to it. I hear that can happen from books I've read, but that's for another time. You're selfish. Can you admit that? Will you admit that you are really the most selfish person you know? Oh, no. You, I, no, no, no. That's what you see. Do you, do you recognize this problem without this problem of selfishness being identified will never move into the humility it takes to solve it? Second word is empty conceit. Really interesting. It means seeking to be noticed and appreciated. Doing what you can to make sure people know that you've done something. If you're good in math and someone's having a problem, oh, I can solve that because I'm, what, good in math. Don't know if you know that, but I wanted you to know that because I'm actually pretty good. If you are around me long enough, you'll know and I can tell you that I am good in math. Happens with, uh, I mean, I've heard it when certain ladies will tell certain other ladies how to get a stain out of something. Empty conceit. I just want you to know, I mean, the stain is irrelevant. What's important is that you know that I know how to fix it. Are guys with cars? Yeah, I know, and they use all these words that none of us understand. I don't even think exist. But the, the double upper over manifold, twisty joint um, flux capacitor, and, and then they, and, and you're, you're left saying, well, I guess, I guess, I guess that's okay. And what do, we, what do you brag about? I didn't ask, do you brag about something? Empty conceit means you want people to notice what you know or who you are. It can show up in different ways. This is a penetrating quote. John Piper says this. Now, follow along with this. This is, this is a painful one. Ready? He says, the nature and depth of human pride are illuminated by comparing boasting to self-pity. Think about that. Boasting, which looks like pride, self-pity looks like humility, right? He says, no, 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 no. Both are manifestations of pride. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. And self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have suffered so much. He goes on to say, boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self sacrificing 
when you're boastful, you want to make sure everyone knows how great you are. When you're feeling sorry for yourself, you want to make sure that everyone else feels as bad about you as you do. They're both pride. Paul says, lay selfishness and empty conceit. Say, do nothing from there. Isn't that, think of the comprehensive nature of that. Do nothing from those. Sounds like the essence of the gospel, which is to deny yourself, right? And take up the cross and follow him. Developing this awareness of our selfishness. And it's, these social graces of, of awareness also have spiritual roots. This is as simple as bumping into someone and not saying, excuse me. That's selfish, right? Not saying, thank you. Selfish. Spiritual awareness is typically manifest in social awareness, but we're going to come back to that. Awareness of the problem of selfishness. Number two of a goal, uh, the second goal for godly maturity, awareness of the interests of others. Awareness of the interests of others. Look at in the middle of verse three. But with humility of, what is it? Mind. See the thinking again? Hear it? Humility of mind. Consider, regard one another as more important than you are. More important than yourselves. I distinctly remember being at a, in a, a sermon, hearing a sermon at a, at a camp when I was in junior high. And, and the, the man preaching, I think, had the best of motives. He was, uh, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for that time. But I remember him saying, you'll never be humble if you know it. Have you heard that? Humility is that virtue that you, if you have it, you don't know it. That's not going on here. That's not what's true here. How, why would God ever command us to do something, the obedience of which we would never know if we actually did it? Does it make sense? Does it? Humility is not some self-depreciating, you know, bang yourself on the face with, with some kind of brick attitude. Humility is making sure that other people's interests are more important than ours. He starts with humility of mind. It's a thinking attitude. And also notice that this action of doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit is based on the inner attitude of humility of mind, thinking rightly about yourself, which means not thinking very highly of ourselves. Humility was not a very valued word in the New Testament time. It was only used of slaves and servants. No one in the time of Paul's writing, no one would have said, to be something is to be humble. Contradictory, counterintuitive, countercultural. In his classic book on humility, Andrew Murray, maybe you've read this book, it's a profound book, <coughs> shows the contrast between humility and pride. Listen to what he says. The life of God, the life God bestows, rather, is imparted not once for all, but each moment continuously by the unceasing operation of his mighty power. What he's saying is, understand that God doesn't just give you life, he gives you moments. And moments become hours, and hours become days, and days become uh, uh, years and decades, and so on. It's, it's all about the moment of decision. Then he says, humility, which is the place of entire dependence on God. What a great definition. 
the place of entire definition, dependence rather, on God, is from the very nature of things, the first duty and highest virtue of the creature. In fact, it is the root of every other virtue. Think about that. Humility is the root of everything, everything we do that will be virtuous. On the other side, he says, so pride, or the loss of humility, is the root of every sin and evil. It was when the now fallen angels began to look upon themselves with self-complacency that they were led to disobedience and were cast down from the light of heaven into outer darkness. Even so it was when the serpent breathed the poison of his pride, the desire to be like God, into the hearts of our first parents that they too fell from their high estate into the wretchedness in which man is now sunk. In heaven and earth, pride or self-exaltation is the gate and birth and curse of hell, end quote. We can't think of pride just as someone who does a dance in the end zone after they, have a, after they score a touchdown. Selfishness and pride chase us like our very shadows. So he goes on to say, verse 4, and I love how he phrases this, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, he gives us that. He knows we're going to look out for our own personal interests. What, what, what would make our lives better and happier and more productive and at ease. Don't only do that. He knows we're going to do that. But also for the interests of others. What are the interests of others? Anything that would make their life better because of us. Anything that would make their life more exposed to gospel truth because of us. We're looking out for their interests, what's best for others, not just what's best for us. Major footnote here. You cannot look out for the interests of others if you don't know the interests of others, can you? This presupposes living and abiding in real and messy relationships between people in the church. Let me say it again. The more healthy we become, the more messy our ministry will be, be because we're just seeing what's already there in our hearts, right? Looking out for the interests of others. Romans 12, 3. We're going to get there in a few weeks. It says, For the grace which was given to me, <coughs> I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. That's the foundation, that we think more highly of ourselves and that shows itself up and just being, it shows itself out and just being clueless about people around us. Just pause, just pause for a few seconds. Think about the countless burdens and needs in the pews and seats around you right now. And how few of us really know what's going on. And for those who are bearing them, how few the people even know or care about that and can serve those needs. Not, it's not just for delegating to the, the pastor. It's not just for delegating to the elders and the church leaders and saying, I see a need, I see a problem. So-and-so needs this. So-and-so needs counsel. So-and-so needs comfort and encouragement. So I'm going to send an email to the church and they'll take care of it. It's the exact opposite of this. No, no. You and I are to be aware and look at the interests of others. My, my dad... Boy, I love my dad for so many reasons, but he, he used to teach us what he called the 10-foot rule. My brothers and my sister and I, 
He said, wherever you are in life, assume that you are sovereign over a 10-foot circle around you. If there's a piece of paper, pick it up. If there's someone to help, help them out. In other words, wherever you are, be there for the benefit of someone else. All of you have a 10-foot circle right now, by the way. Think about it before you walk out of the building. If you want to grow in godly maturity, you need to develop awareness of the problem of selfishness, awareness of the interests of others, and now verse 5, awareness of the humility of Christ. Awareness of the humility of Christ. Most theologians look at this passage and they begin in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, and they get into all of the nuances of what this, what theologians call the kenosis, the setting aside of, of the use of some of his divine attributes in this mysterious passage. What they fail to realize is something we must realize. Jesus, in all of his setting aside of the use of some of his divine attributes in this passage, this incredible humbling of Christ, is only an illustration of what he tells us to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. I'm not demeaning it. I'm putting it in context. Jesus illustrates what Paul is telling us to do in becoming aware. For a Christian, then, everything in life is Christological. We could say it like this. We are never more like God than when we're humble because the greatest expression of God was the incarnation and the incarnation is said here to be fundamentally defined by the fact that Jesus humbled himself. It's the essence of the gospel. So look down through this passage. Who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality of God. Your Bible probably says a thing to be grasped. It really means a thing to be put on display. Uh, asserted, bragged about. Can you imagine being God? Well, don't imagine that too much. Can you imagine being God in the flesh and not telling anybody? Oh, I know he told them, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. In, in teaching discourses, he definitely taught that. But not having a loudspeaker all the time and just saying, God's here, right here. Anybody want to know what God's like? Come on over. Walking through the hundreds, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in his lifetime, bumping into them in a crowd, people walking through, ignoring him, and he's God. He didn't brag about it. He instructed about it. He taught about it. If you've seen me, if you've seen the Father, he didn't regard that something to be bragged about. Think about the things that we brag about. We try to be noticed about or by. He didn't do it. I mean, I, I, I just imagine him in a crowd uh, and someone saying, boy, I, I hate my thin hair. I hate my thick hair. I hate my nose. Boy, I can't see very well. This was before eyeglasses. Uh, I wish I was taller. I wish I was shorter. I wish I was thinner. I wish I was heavier. I wish I was... And, and for him, can you imagine him just stopping and saying, hey, by the way, I made you like this. I, I existed before the world began, and, and I actually predetermined and preordained that you would be you. I made that nose and the thinness or thickness of your hair or whatever it is. I made that. He never did that. 
I would have done that. See that beautiful sunrise? See that beautiful sunset? One of my better ones this week. He didn't brag about it. And he left us an example. He didn't regard equality to be a thing to be bragged about. But he, here's the word that we get the kenosis from. He emptied himself, which doesn't mean God minus anything. It means God plus human flesh. He emptied himself, (coughs) which means he set aside the use of some of his divine attributes during his life on this planet. You say, give me an example. Omnipresence? Was Jesus omnipresent on this planet? No, he localized himself in the form of a man, right? Taking on the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. He was like us, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4 tells us, and that he was tempted, being found in appearance as a man. We saw God as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death as a criminal on a cross. That's who was put to death on crosses were criminals. The indignity of it, the embarrassment of it. And for this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's God to the glory of God the Father. There's your example. There's our example is to look to Christ. How aware are you? How aware are we as a church? Or how clueless can we be? I'm uh, in the middle, <coughs> not done yet, of raising three sons. And I am very aware of their cluelessness. but not so aware of mine. I'm an expert in their selfishness and clues. I, I mean, I'll tell you, you talk about a selfishometer, that's me. Selfish, 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 selfish. Then comes that day when your kids start actually learning what you're saying and then say, Dad, that seems Selfish. I'm the father here, and, and you know, you just need to know your place. How aware are we of our selfishness and empty conceit, and how willing are we to be corrected in that? Can we just dream for just a few seconds? What would Mission Road Bible Church be? What could we be? What would we be like if we were all serious about becoming aware? Says treating others <laughs> as more important than yourself, that others can have a little O and a big capital O, lowercase and uppercase. Others includes God, doesn't it? Are you aware and promoting the interests of God? That's the Great Commission. Aware of making others' lives better because they know us and are with us. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, trying to be tricked actually by the Pharisees, they silenced the Sadducees. Jesus silenced Sadducees, so the Pharisees had their chance. They, they get their best lawyer. Don't think of a lawyer as an attorney like, like we have. A lawyer in the New Testament, think theologian. Uh, lawyer, it was one who knew the law. 
It wasn't someone who represented someone in a case. So when you read in the New Testament, the Gospels, especially about the, the lawyer came, the rich young lawyer or ruler, these are people who knew a lot about the, the law. So this, this theologian, one of them, a lawyer, came and asked Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great, greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says, I'll answer that, and I'll answer a second question you're not asking. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And then he says before they go on, and, and the second is like it. I'll give, you, I'll give you a twofer. You want an answer? Let me give you a two for one. The second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's what it means to look after the interests of others, is to make much of God in his interests and be aware of the interests of others and devote ourselves to that. What, what could we be like in Kansas City as a group of people who were fundamentally and intentionally aware of others and aware of our own selfishness. Boy, I think that the city would sit up and take notice of that little church in Prairie Village. Not for our sake, but they would say, what makes those people like that? And what's our answer? Jesus Christ. Because we're having this attitude in ourselves that also and first existed where? In him. Is this, a, this is not really a state of the church address, but can I just tell you, as one of your elders, I think the place we need to grow more is not building buildings and paying off debts. Those are neat things. I think the place we need to grow most is becoming aware, is to stop being clueless by first recognizing how clueless we really are. Not if, but how and how much. So let me put everyone on a weird, awkward alert, okay? I'm going to pray in a minute. We're going to leave, and everyone's going to be this kind of weirdly aware. I like weirdly aware. How are you doing? How are you doing? No, how are you doing? How are you doing? I'm working so hard, but that's Christian love fellowship. That's maintaining purpose. What would, could God do if we had a church full of people who were aware and stopped being clueless? You can find it everywhere. Find it in yourself.